Hello, and welcome to Storytime for Grown-Ups. I'm Faith Moore, and this season we're reading Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Each episode, I'll read one chapter from the book, pausing from time to time to give brief explanations so it's easier to follow along. It's like an audiobook with built-in notes. So brew a pot of tea, find a cozy chair, and settle in. It's story time. so glad to be here with you. I'm back from my trip, and better than ever, and I would like to take a moment to welcome new listeners. I know a lot of people found the show this week, which is amazing. I'm so grateful and so excited and happy to have you here. I know that for some people, they found us last week and they went back to chapter one, which is the right thing to do, and so they're working their way back toward us, and I think they'll probably catch up with us soon. So if you are diving in right now because you heard about us somewhere else and you are checking us out. If this is your first time with Jane Eyre at all, if you don't know the story of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, then it's a good idea to pause this episode and go back to chapter one. We're reading Jane Eyre chapter by chapter with a few notes along the way. So you'll want to start with chapter one. We're about to do chapter 14 here, so you would be lost. But don't worry, we'll still be here when you get back, just like we're here for everyone else who's been quickly binging us in an attempt to catch us and you will catch us and I hope if you've caught us today then I am very very glad that you're here with us in real time and of course welcome back to everyone who has been here all along I'm so glad to be here with you I cannot tell you how wonderful it is to be sharing this story with you I love it it's a story that has been part of my life for such a long time part of my heart and now to have so many people newly eager and excited to talk about it is just really a dream come true for me. So thank you for everyone who is here, new and old, and welcome. So if you haven't already subscribed or followed wherever you're listening, please do that. It really helps the show and it really helps even more people to find us and it helps us to grow. And when we grow, we can do more fun and exciting things. So that's really what we want. If you haven't already, please also tap those five stars. If you're enjoying the show, give it a five star rating. And if you have the time, a review as well. Those are all really great ways to quickly and easily support the show and help us to go on to do even more fun and exciting things. And thank you to those of you who already have, who are already following, already rated the show, already reviewed it. I really appreciate it. I see them, you know, I check from time to time and I love reading your reviews and seeing all of those five stars that are coming in. So thank you for doing all of those things. I have had several questions in the last couple of weeks about kind of about logistics. Two main things have been on people's minds. One is, what book are we doing next? And the other is that people want more analysis. You know, they want to talk more, do more deep dives um, about kind of the book as a whole and kind of developing those themes and things like that. So I just, I wanted to give you a quick understanding of what my thoughts are here. I do have a next book in mind. I don't want to share it with you yet. I would like that to be a big reveal at some point down the line. But I do have another book that is coming up, and I do have more books on a list of books that we will read in the future. If there are books that you're really dying for me to do, please feel free to let me know. You can just contact me via my website, faithkmore.com, and click on contact, and I would be happy to take your suggestions as well. Um, 
in case anybody, no one has asked me this, but I know I would want to know this if I was listening. There are 38 chapters in this book, and we're about to do chapter 14. And it means that if we continue on the pace that we've been on of doing two episodes a week, which I intend to continue with, then we'll finish this book somewhere in the month of May. So um, that's one thing to know. Another thing to know is that I do know what book we're doing next, but ha ha ha, I will not reveal it to you yet. And the third thing is that I very much intend after we've finished this book to take some time to really delve into some of the themes. You know, we'll take a little break between Jane Eyre and the next book and I will put out some episodes and we'll have some live streams and we'll do some events and things like that where we really kind of dig into the book almost like an English class, but hopefully more fun and less ridiculous and dry. So, you know, we will, all of the things that we've been talking about in the in the initial question sections, we'll come back to and we'll, we'll dive in. We'll do some deep dives into the themes of the story, the plot, the characters, all of those things that we've been kind of thinking about as we go along. Once the book is over and all of the plot points have been revealed, then we can really do some discussion. And I hope to do that in a variety of ways. So stay tuned. I know that you're kind of, uh, many of you are kind of uh, hungry for that, and I am too. So that is coming. Don't worry. Okay, so I'm going to move on to the question section for today. I got this question several times in several different ways. And the question itself is very straightforward, but actually when I went to kind of make sure that I was saying the right thing, I realized, oh wow, this is actually really interesting. So it doesn't really need the recap for the question, but it's good to just get us back into the mindset of the story and also just to remember before we move into chapter 14 what happened in chapter 13. So let's do the recap and then we'll go into the question. Also, don't forget that you can ask questions and you should. Please ask ask your questions, send me your comments about the story, and don't worry if we've moved on past chapter 14. By the time you get here, your questions will probably still be relevant, so send them my way. You can go to my website, faithkmore.com, click on contact, and those go straight to my email. You can also find me on x at faithkmore. You can do a post where you just tag me, or you can reply to the posts that I do about each episode, and those are all great ways to get in touch with me and ask your questions. So please do get them in because I absolutely love them and it's the way that we've been developing all of these meaty themes and ideas that everybody is enjoying so much or many of you are enjoying so much. So please get those in. All right, let's take a look at what happened last time. So where we left off, Jane was called into Mr. Rochester's presence and he questioned her about her upbringing and her schooling and her time at Lowood and about her accomplishments. And he is a very kind of gruff and maybe slightly rude person kind of questioning her without any formality and in a very kind of blunt way. And in the end, he ended up being very taken with three of Jane's paintings from her portfolio. And afterwards, Jane learned from Mrs. Fairfax that something has happened in Mr. Rochester's past that has made him kind of angry and ornery, and it makes him not want to stay very long in one place, stay very long at Thornfield, and it has something to do with Mr. Rochester's father and his late elder brother, who contrived some scheme to allow Mr. Rochester to have some money because he was the second son. But whatever it was, Mrs. Fairfax told Jane that it was kind of horrible for Mr. Rochester. and He feels very stuck in whatever situation they put him in, but we don't actually know what that is. 
Okay, so today's question comes to us from Therese. I hope I'm saying that right. And this one, as I said, was asked several different times, but I'm just choosing this one. She writes, were the readers in Bronte's time proficient in French and other languages as part of their basic education, since she does not provide translations? She seems to presume that her readers understand French. Okay, so this is a great question because, like I said in one of the episodes, there's all of this French, particularly when Adele is speaking, and Bronte doesn't translate it. So I've been translating it because I think it is it's impossible to understand if you don't speak French and you need to understand it because it's the dialogue of one of the characters and you would be lost if you weren't able to follow it. So this question of why is Bronte putting this French in there and not translating it is a good one. So the French in Jane Eyre and in Bronte's other novels, by the way, is extensive and she hardly ever translates it. So what is going on? Okay, so it is true that Bronte's readers probably would have understood more French than the average reader today. As we see in the story with Jane herself, French was the language that school children in England were taught rather than here now, here in the States, it's usually Spanish, I would say. So French is the kind of default language that children were taught a lot of the time in England. I myself, grew up in England. I lived there from the age of nine to the age of 16, and I was taught French as well by default as a schoolgirl in London. I am by no means fluent. My brother Spencer is the linguist in the family. I do not speak really any French at all, but I do understand enough to kind of read the the French in this book without having to look it up, but then I do look it up to let you guys know exactly what it said. Spencer, by the way, my brother, has an excellent podcast, Young Heretics, and if you're not listening to that one, you should, because he talks about the great books of the West in great detail. So a, a sibling in more ways than one to this podcast. So check out Young Heretics with my brother Spencer Clavin if you haven't already. But anyway, French is taught in England much more than it is here to school children. But Bronte, Charlotte Bronte, had a particular affection for French. And she also had a sort of stubborn belief that everyone should learn it. So in 1842, Charlotte Bronte and her sister Emily, who is the Bronte sister that eventually went on to write Wuthering Heights, went to a boarding school in Brussels with the purpose of practicing their French. So they already knew some French, but they wanted to go and really become fluent. They went to a school that was run by a married couple. Excuse my pronunciation, I think it's the Heger. So Mr. and Mrs. Monsieur et Madame Heger. The Sisters had to go home again after their aunt, who, remember, was basically like their mother, their caretaker, died. But Charlotte returned to the school in 1843 and became a teacher there. And it was during this second stay that she became very attached to the school's headmaster, Constantin Heger. And her letters to him survive and are now largely believed to convey an unrequited love on the part of Charlotte for the headmaster. And this relationship is interesting in and of itself, and Heger is often considered to be the inspiration for several of Bronte's male characters, including Mr. Rochester from Jane Eyre. And Charlotte did seem to have this kind of passionate attachment to him that he, by all accounts, did not 
return. And so partly because of this experience and partly because she was already kind of enamored of the French language, Bronte included a lot of French in her novels and she refused to translate it even when her publisher begged her to. She called French the universal language in a letter to a friend, and she felt that leaving the French passages would encourage people to learn the language that she loved so much. So there you go. Maybe it will encourage you to go away and learn some French, but don't worry, I will be translating the French for you here on Storytime for Grown Ups. So that's the answer to what is going on with all the French in this book and in any of other any other of Charlotte Bronte's books that you may have encountered. And if anyone listening actually does speak French, I am truly, truly sorry for my pronunciation and my accent and all of those things. I'm doing the best that I can to read the French given my British schoolgirls limitations of the French language. So sorry to all who actually speak French out there. So if you want to ask a question, don't forget that you absolutely can. You, sh you could pause the episode as you're listening. There's a link in the show notes to contact me and get those questions in because they are great for these wonderful and juicy little deep dives that we've been doing here at the beginning of the show. All right, let's get started with chapter 14 of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. It's story time. Chapter 14. For several subsequent days I saw little of Mr. Rochester. In the mornings he seemed much engaged with business, and in the afternoon gentlemen from Milcote or the neighborhood called and sometimes stayed to dine with him. So called means they came to the house, not that they phoned him. When his brain was well enough to admit of horse exercise, he rode out a good deal, probably to return these visits, as he generally did not come back till late at night. During this interval even Adele was seldom sent for to his presence and all my acquaintance with him was confined to an occasional rencontre in the hall. A rencontre is like a chance meeting, so she bumps into him sometimes in the house, but that's it. On the stairs or in the gallery, when he would sometimes pass me haughtily and coldly, just acknowledging my presence by a distant nod or a cool glance, and sometimes bow and smile with gentlemanlike affability. His changes of mood did not offend me, because I saw that I had nothing to do with their alternation. The ebb and flow depended on causes quite disconnected with me. One day he had had company to dinner, and had sent for my portfolio, in order, doubtless, to exhibit its contents. The gentleman went away early, to attend a public meeting at Milcote, as Mrs. Fairfax informed me, but the night being wet and inclement, Mr. Rochester did not accompany them. Soon after they were gone he rang the bell. A message came that I and Adele were to go downstairs. I brushed Adele's hair and made her neat, and having ascertained that I was myself in my usual Quaker trim, where there was nothing to retouch, all being too close and plain, braided locks included, to admit of disarrangement, we descended. Adele wondering whether the petite coffre was at length come. The petite coffre is the little box. Remember Mr. Rochester said he had a box for her when his luggage arrived. For, owing to some mistake, its arrival had hitherto been delayed. She was gratified. There it stood, a little carton, on the table when we entered the dining room. She appeared to know it by instinct. Ma boite, ma boite, she exclaimed, running towards it. So she says, my box, my box. Yes, there is your boite at last. Take it into a corner, you genuine daughter of Paris, and amuse yourself with disemboweling it, said the deep and rather sarcastic voice of Mr. Rochester, proceeding from the depths of an immense easy chair at the fireside. And mind, he continued, don't bother me with any details of the anatomical process or any notice of the condition of the entrails. 
So he's comparing what Adele will do with the box. She's, he's brought her to the process of disemboweling an animal. Let your operation be conducted in silence. Tiens-toi tranquille, enfant. Comprends-tu? He's saying, be quiet, child. Do you understand? Adele seemed scarcely to need the warning. She had already retired to a sofa with her treasure and was busy untying the cord which secured the lid. Having removed this impediment and lifted certain silvery envelopes of tissue paper, she merely exclaimed, Oh, ciel, que c'est beau! She's exclaiming that whatever is inside the box is beautiful. And then remained absorbed in ecstatic contemplation. Is Miss Eyre there? Now demanded the master, half rising from his seat to look round to the door, near which I still stood. Ah, well, come forward, be seated here. He drew a chair near his own. I am not fond of the prattle of children, he continued. For, old bachelor as I am, I have no pleasant associations connected with their lisp. It would be intolerable to me to pass a whole evening tete-a-tete with a brat. Don't draw that chair further off, Miss Eyre. Sit down exactly where I placed it. If you please, that is. Confound these civilities. I continually forget them. Nor do I particularly affect simple-minded old ladies. By the by, I must have mine in mind. It won't do to neglect her. She is a Fairfax or wed to one, and blood is said to be thicker than water. He rang and dispatched an invitation to Mrs. Fairfax, who soon arrived, knitting basket in hand. Good evening, madam. I sent to you for a charitable purpose. I have forbidden Adele to talk to me about her presence, and she is bursting with repletion. Have the goodness to serve her as auditress and interlocutrice. It will be one of the most benevolent acts you ever performed. So he's saying he sees that Adele wants to talk about her presence, but he doesn't want to listen to her talk about them. So he's asking Mrs. Fairfax to listen to her instead. Adele, indeed, no sooner saw Mrs. Fairfax than she summoned her to her sofa, and there quickly filled her lap with the porcelain, the ivory, the waxen contents of her boite, pouring out, meantime, explanations and raptures in such broken English as he was mistress of. Now I have performed the part of a good host, pursued Mr. Rochester. Put my guests into the way of amusing each other. I ought to be at liberty to attend my own pleasure. Miss Eyre, draw your chair still a little farther forward. You are yet too far back. I cannot see you without disturbing my position in this comfortable chair, which I have no mind to do. I did as I was bid, though I would much rather have remained somewhat in the shade. But Mr. Rochester had such a direct way of giving orders, it seemed a matter of course to obey him promptly. We were, as I have said, in the dining room. The luster which had been lit for dinner filled the room with a festal breadth of light. The large fire was all red and clear. The purple curtains hung rich and ample before the lofty window and loftier arch. Everything was still, save the subdued chat of Adele, she dared not speak loud, and filling up each pause, the beating of winter rain against the panes. Mr. Rochester, as he sat in his damask-covered chair, looked different to what I had seen him look before, not quite so stern, much less gloomy. There was a smile on his lips, and his eyes sparkled, whether with wine or not I am not sure but I think it very probable. He was, in short, in his after-dinner mood, more expanded and genial, and also more self-indulgent than the frigid and rigid temper of the morning. Still, he looked preciously grim, cushioning his massive head against the swelling back of his chair, and receiving the light of the fire on his granite-hewn features and in his great dark eyes, for he had great dark eyes and very fine eyes, too, not without a certain change in their depth sometimes, which, if it was not softness, reminded you at least of that feeling. He had been looking two minutes at the fire, and I had been looking the same length of time at him, when, turning suddenly, he caught my gaze fastened on his physiognomy. "'You examine me, Miss Eyre,' said he. "'Do you
Do you think me handsome? I should, if I had deliberated, have replied to this question by something conventionally vague and polite, but the answer somehow slipped from my tongue before I was aware. No, sir. Ah, by my word, there is something singular about you, said he. You have the air of a little nonette, quaint, quiet, grave, and simple, as you sit with your hands before you and your eyes generally bent on the carpet, except, by the by, when they are directed piercingly to my face, as just now, for instance, and when one asks you a question or makes a remark to which you are obliged to reply, you wrap out a round rejoinder, which, if not blunt, is at least brusque. What do you mean by it? Sir, I was too plain. I beg your pardon. I ought to have replied that it was not easy to give an impromptu answer to a question about appearances, that tastes mostly differ, and that beauty is of little consequence, or something of that sort. You ought to have replied no such thing. Beauty of little consequence, indeed. And so, under pretense of softening the previous outrage, of stroking and soothing me into placidity, you stick a sly penknife under my ear. Go on. What fault do you find with me, pray? I suppose I have all my limbs and all my features like any other man. Mr. Rochester, allow me to disown my first answer. I intended no pointed repartee. It was only a blunder. Just so. I think so. And you shall be answerable for it. Criticize me. Does my forehead not please you? He lifted up the sable waves of hair which lay horizontally over his brow and showed a solid enough mass of intellectual organs, but an abrupt deficiency where the suave sign of benevolence should have risen. So here's phrenology again. Now, ma'am, am I a fool? Far from it, sir. You would perhaps think me rude if I inquired in return whether you are a philanthropist. There again, another stick of the penknife, when she pretended to pat my head. And that is because I said I did not like the society of children and old women. Low be it spoken. No, young lady, I am not a general philanthropist, but I bear a conscience. And he pointed to the prominences which are said to indicate that faculty, and which, fortunately for him, were sufficiently conspicuous, giving, indeed, a marked breadth to the upper part of his head. And besides, I once had a kind of rude tenderness of heart, when I was as old as you. I was a feeling fellow enough, partial to the unfledged, unfostered, and unlucky, but fortune has knocked me about since. She has even kneaded me with her knuckles, and now I flatter myself I am hard and tough as an India rubber ball, pervious, though, through a chink or two still, and with one sentient point in the middle of the lump. Yes, does that leave hope for me? Okay, so all of that was him using phrenology to tell her about his character. He says he used to be tender and caring, but that circumstances have hardened him, but that perhaps there is still some feeling somewhere left in him. Hope of what, sir? Of my final retransformation from India rubber back to flesh. India rubber is a very tough kind of rubber, like a, a hard rubber ball. He's asking if she thinks he could go from a hard man back to a feeling one. Decidedly, he has had too much wine. I thought, and I did not know what answer to make to his queer question. How could I tell whether he was capable of being re-transformed? You look much puzzled, Miss Eyre, and though you are not pretty any more than I am handsome, yet a puzzled air becomes you. Besides, it is convenient, for it keeps those searching eyes of yours away from my physiognomy, and busies them with the worsted flowers of the rug. So, puzzle on. Young lady, I am disposed to be gregarious and communicative tonight. With this announcement, he rose from his chair and stood, leaning his arm on the marble mantelpiece. In that attitude, his shape was seen plainly, as well as his face. His unusual breadth of chest, disproportionate almost to his length of limb. I am sure most people would have thought him an ugly man. 
Yet there was so much unconscious pride in his port, so much ease in his demeanor, such a look of complete indifference to his own external appearance, so haughty a reliance on the power of other qualities, intrinsic or adventitious, to atone for the lack of mere personal attractiveness, that, in looking at him, one inevitably shared the indifference, and, even in a blind, imperfect sense, put faith in the confidence. So he seems to not care at all what he looks like, and that makes other people not care what he looks like, or at least it makes Jane not care. I am disposed to be gregarious and communicative tonight, he repeated, and that is why I sent for you. The fire and the chandelier were not sufficient company for me, nor would Pilate have been, for none of these can talk. Adele is a degree better, but still far below the mark. Mrs. Fairfax, ditto. You, I am persuaded, can suit me, if you will. You puzzled me the first evening I invited you down here. I have almost forgotten you since. Other ideas have driven yours from my head, but tonight I am resolved to be at ease, to dismiss what importunes, and recall what pleases. It would please me now to draw you out, to learn more of you. Therefore, speak. Instead of speaking, I smiled, and not a very complacent or submissive smile either. Speak, he urged. What about, sir? Whatever you like. I leave both the choice of subject and the manner of treating it entirely to yourself. Accordingly, I sat and said nothing. If he expects me to talk for the mere sake of talking and showing off, he will find he has addressed himself to the wrong person, I thought. You are dumb, Miss Eyre. He's not saying she's stupid, he's just saying silent. Dumb means silent, so he's commenting that she's not speaking. I was dumb still. He bent his head a little towards me, and with a single hasty glance seemed to dive into my eyes. Stubborn, he said, and annoyed. Ah, it is consistent. I put my request in an absurd, almost insolent form. Miss Eyre, I beg your pardon. The fact is, once for all, I don't wish to treat you like an inferior. That is, correcting himself, I claim only such superiority as must result from twenty years' difference in age and a sensory's advance in experience. This is legitimate, as j'y tiens, as Adele would say. And it is my virtue of this superiority and this alone that I desire you to have the goodness to talk to me a little now and divert my thoughts, which are galled with dwelling on one point, cankering as a rusty nail. He's asking her to talk to him because his thoughts are dwelling on one thing and he wants to be distracted, not because he's trying to antagonize or embarrass her. He had deigned an explanation, almost an apology, and I did not feel insensible to his condescension and would not seem so. I am willing to amuse you, if I can, sir, quite willing, but I cannot introduce a topic because how do I know what will interest you? Ask me questions, and I will do my best to answer them. Then, in the first place, do you agree with me that I have a right to be a little masterful, abrupt, perhaps exacting sometimes, on the grounds I stated, namely that I am old enough to be your father and that I have battled through a varied experience with many men of many nations and roamed over half the globe while you have lived quietly with one set of people in one house? Do as you please, sir. That is no answer, or rather it is a very irritating, because a very evasive one. Reply clearly. I don't think, sir, you have a right to command me, merely because you are older than I, or because you have seen more of the world than I have. Your claim to superiority depends on the use you have made of your time and experience. She's saying he's not better than her simply because he's older and has, has more experience, but he's, he could be better than her if he used his time and experience in some way that made him superior. Humph. <laughs> promptly spoken, but I won't allow that, seeing that it would never suit my case, as I have made an indifferent, not to say a bad use of both advantages. 
Leaving superiority out of the question, then, you must still agree to receive my orders now and then without being piqued or hurt by the tone of command. Will you? I smiled. I thought to myself, Mr. Rochester is peculiar. He seems to forget that he pays me 30 pounds per annum for receiving his orders. The smile is very well, said he, catching instantly the passing expression. But speak, too. I was thinking, sir, that very few masters would trouble themselves to inquire whether or not their paid subordinates were piqued or hurt by their orders. Paid subordinates? What? You are my paid subordinate, are you? Oh, yes, I had forgotten the salary. Well, then, on that mercenary ground, will you agree to let me hector a little? No, sir, not on that ground, but on the ground that you did forget it, and that you care whether or not a dependent is comfortable in his dependency. I agree heartily. And will you consent to dispense with a great many conventional forms and phrases without thinking that the omission arises from insolence? He's asking if she'll put up with his lack of manners and his abruptness and not assume that he's being intentionally rude. I am sure, sir, that I would never mistake informality for insolence. One I rather like. The other nothing freeborn would submit to, even for a salary. Humbug. Most things freeborn will submit to anything for a salary. Therefore, keep to yourself and don't venture on generalities of which you are intensely ignorant. However, I mentally shake hands with you for your answer, despite its inaccuracy, and as much for the manner in which it was said. As for the substance of the speech, the manner was frank and sincere. One does not often see such a manner. No, on the contrary, affectation or coldness or stupid, coarse-minded misapprehension of one's meaning are the usual rewards of candor. Not three and three thousand raw schoolgirl governesses would have answered me as you have just done. But I don't mean to flatter you. If you are cast in a different mold to the majority, it is no merit of yours. Nature did it. And then, after all, I go too fast in my conclusions. For what I yet know, you may be no better than the rest. You may have intolerable defects to counterbalance your few good points. And so may you, I thought. My eye met his as the idea crossed my mind. He seemed to read the glance, answering as if its import had been spoken as well as imagined. "'Yes, yes, you are right,' said he. "'I have plenty of faults of my own. "'I know it, and I don't wish to palliate them.'" So palliate means to make less severe. So he's saying he's not trying to make his own faults seem less than they are. He acknowledges them. "'I assure you, God what I need not be too severe about others. "'I have a past existence, a series of deeds, "'a color of life to contemplate within my own breast, "'which might well call my sneers and censures "'from my neighbors to myself. "'I started, or rather... For like other defaulters, I like to lay half the blame on ill fortune and adverse circumstances, was thrust onto a wrong track at the age of one and twenty. One and twenty means twenty-one. And have never recovered the right course since. So he's saying at twenty-one his life went wrong in some way and it hasn't come right again since then. But I might have been very different. I might have been as good as you. Wiser. Almost as stainless. I envy you your peace of mind, your clean conscience, your unpolluted memory. Little girl, a memory without blot or contamination must be an exquisite treasure, an inexhaustible source of pure refreshment, is it not? How was your memory when you were eighteen, sir? All right, then. Limpid, salubrious. Limpid is clear. Salubrious means healthy. No gush of bilgewater had turned it to a fetid puddle. I was your equal at eighteen, quite your equal. Nature meant me to be, on the whole, a good man, Miss Eyre one of the better kind. And you see, I am not so. You would say you don't see it. At least I flatter myself, I read as much in your eye. Beware, by the by, what you express with that organ. I am quick at interpreting its language. 
then take my word for it. I am not a villain. You are not to suppose that not to attribute to me any such bad eminence, but owing, I verily believe, rather to circumstances than to my natural bent, I am a trite, commonplace sinner, hackneyed in all the poor, petty dissipations with which the rich and worthless try to put on life. He feels he was meant to be a good man, and is at heart, but circumstances have turned him into a sinner. Do you wonder that I avow this to you? Know that in the course of your future life you will often find yourself elected the involuntary confidant of your acquaintance's secrets. People will instinctively find out, as I have done, that it is not your forte to tell of yourself, but to listen while others talk of themselves. They will feel, too, that you listen with no malevolent scorn for their indiscretion, but with a kind of innate sympathy, not the less comforting and encouraging because it is very unobtrusive in its manifestations. He's saying because she doesn't share much about her own life and listens without judgment, she's going to often be the recipient of people's secrets and life stories the way he is opening up to her now. How do you know? How can you guess all this, sir? I know it well. Therefore, I proceed almost as freely as if I were writing my thoughts in a diary. You would say I should have been superior to circumstances. So I should. So I should. But you see, I was not. When fate wronged me, I had not the wisdom to remain cool. I turned desperate, and then I degenerated. Now, when any vicious simpleton excites my disgust by his paltry ribaldry, that means his petty coarse talk, I cannot flatter myself that I am better than he. I am forced to confess that he and I are on a level. I wish I had stood firm. God knows I do. Dread remorse when you are tempted to err, Miss Eyre. Remorse is the poison of life. Repentance is said to be its cure, sir. It is not its cure. Reformation may be its cure, and I could reform. I have strength yet for that, if... But where is the use of thinking of it, hampered, burdened, cursed as I am? Besides, such happiness is irrevocably denied me. I have a right to get pleasure out of life, and I will get it, cost what it may. Jane says that he could repent of whatever sins he's committed and then free himself of remorse, but Rochester says that the only cure is to reform himself, but he's saying there's some impediment to this reform. So he, he's burdened with something that stops him from living a sinless life. And since he can't change that, he's may, he may as well seek pleasure where he may. Then you will degenerate still more, sir. Possibly. Yet why should I if I can get sweet, fresh pleasure? And I may get it as sweet and fresh as the wild honey the bee gathers on the moor. It will sting. It will taste bitter, sir. How do you know? You never tried it. How very serious. How very solemn you look. And you are as ignorant of the matter as this cameo head, taking one from the mantelpiece. You have no right to preach to me, you neophyte, that have not passed the porch of life and are absolutely unacquainted with its mysteries. I only remind you of your own words, sir. You said error brought remorse, and you pronounced remorse the poison of existence. And who talks of error now? I scarcely think the notion that flittered across my brain was an error. I believe it was an inspiration rather than a temptation. It was very genial, very soothing. I know that. Here it comes again. It is no devil, I assure you. Or if it be, it has put on the robes of an angel of light. I think I must admit so fair a guest when it asks entrance to my heart. Distrust it, sir. It is not a true angel. Once more, how do you know? By what instinct do you pretend to distinguish between a fallen seraph of the abyss and a messenger from the eternal throne, between a guide and a seducer? I judged by your countenance, sir, which was troubled when you said the suggestion had returned upon you. I feel sure it will work you more misery if you listen to it. 
Not at all. It bears the most gracious message in the world. For the rest, you are not my conscience keeper, so don't make yourself uneasy. Here, come in, bonny wanderer. He said this as if he spoke to a vision, viewless to any eye but his own. Then, folding his arms, which he had half extended on his chest, he seemed to enclose in their embrace the invisible being. Now, he continued, again addressing me, I have received the pilgrim, a disguised deity, as I verily believe. Already it has done me good. My heart was a sort of charnel. It will now be a shrine. So a charnel is a place of death. So Mr. Rochester is welcoming in some idea that he's had for his pleasure and calling it an angel and saying it will bring him happiness. But Jane is saying she's worried that it's actually a devil. To speak truth, sir, I don't understand you at all. I cannot keep up the conversation because it has got out of my depth. Only one thing I know. You said you were not as good as you should like to be and that you regretted your own imperfection. One thing I can comprehend. You intimated that to have a sullied memory was a perpetual bane. It seems to me that if you tried hard, you would in time find it possible to become what you yourself would approve, and that if from this day you began with resolution to correct your thoughts and actions, you would in a few years have laid up a new and stainless store of recollections, to which you might revert with pleasure. Justly thought, rightly said, Miss Eyre, and at this moment I am paving hell with energy. So the expression is the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So he's saying his intentions are very good and he wants to make a change. Sir, I am laying down good intentions, which I believe durable as flint. Certainly my associates in pursuit shall be other than they have been. And better? And better. So much better as pure ore is than foul dross. You seem to doubt me. I don't doubt myself. I know what my aim is, what my motives are, and at this moment I pass a law unalterable as that of the Medes and Persians, that both are right. Both meaning his aim and his motives are right. And he's passing a law, he's saying that, that this is true. They cannot be, sir, if they require a new statute to legalize them. They are, Miss Eyre, though they absolutely require a new statute. Unheard of combinations of circumstances demand unheard of rules. That sounds a dangerous maxim, sir, because one can see at once that it is liable to abuse. Sententious sage. So he's saying the pompous, you're being pompous and moralizing, but also wise. So it is, but I swear by my household gods not to abuse it. You are human and fallible. I am. So are you. What then? The human and fallible should not arrogate a power arrogate means to claim without justification so should not arrogate a power with which the divine and perfect alone can be safely entrusted what power that of saying of any strange unsanctioned line of action let it be right let it be right the very words you have pronounced them may it be right then i said as i rose deeming it useless to continue a discourse which was all darkness to me so she doesn't know what the thing is that Mr. Rochester is resolving to do and declaring is right, and she's confused, and she doesn't see any point in continuing this conversation. So we also are confused here. So if you're feeling confused, it's okay. He's talking about something in his past and something that he's resolving to do now, and Jane doesn't know what he's talking about, and we don't either. And besides, sensible that the character of my interlocutor was beyond my penetration, so she can't understand what Mr. Rochester's character, at least beyond its present reach, and feeling the uncertainty, the vague sense of insecurity which accompanies a conviction of ignorance. Where are you going? To put Adele to bed. It is past her bedtime. You are afraid of me, 
because I talk like a sphinx. Your language is enigmatical, sir, and though I am bewildered, I am certainly not afraid. You are afraid. Your self-love dreads a blunder. In that sense, I do feel apprehensive. I have no wish to talk nonsense. If you did, it would be in such a grave, quiet manner I should mistake it for sense. Do you never laugh, Miss Eyre? Don't trouble yourself to answer. I see you laugh rarely. But you can laugh very merrily. Believe me, you are not naturally austere, any more than I am naturally vicious. The lowwood constraint still clings to you somewhat, controlling your features, muffling your voice, and restricting your limbs. And you fear in the presence of a man and a brother, or father or master or what you will, to smile too gaily, speak too freely, or move too quickly. But in time, I think, you will learn to be natural with me, as I find it impossible to be conventional with you. And then your looks and movements will have more vivacity and variety than they dare offer now. I see at intervals the glance of a curious sort of bird through the close-set bars of a cage. Here's a reference to Jane as a bird again. A vivid, restless, resolute captive is there. Were it but free, it would soar cloud-high. You are still bent on going? Well, Mr. Rochester is alluding here to Jane's spirit, her, her inner self, which he thinks is much less restrained than she is acting now. And he thinks, and he hopes, that in time she'll act in a freer way with him, because he feels compelled to be unconventional with her, so not observing the rules and customs of master and employee. It has struck nine, sir. Never mind. Wait a minute. Adele is not ready to go to bed yet. My position, Miss Eyre, with my back to the fire and my face to the room, favors observation. While talking to you, I have also occasionally watched Adele. I have my own reasons for thinking her a curious study, reasons that I may, nay, that I shall impart to you some day. She pulled out of her box about ten minutes ago a little pink silk frock. Rapture lit her face as she unfolded it. Coquetry runs in her blood blends with her brains and seasons the marrow of her bones. Il faut que je laisse, cried she, et à l'instant même. So I have to try it on this instant. And she rushed out of the room. She is now with Sophie, undergoing a robing process. In a few minutes, she will re-enter. And I know what I shall see, a miniature of Celine Varens, as she used to appear on the boards at the rising of... But never mind that. So the, the boards would be a stage. So Adele reminds Mr. Rochester of someone named Celine Varens, and remember, Varens is also Adele's last name. However, my tenderest feelings are about to receive a shock. Such is my presentiment. Stay now, to see whether it will be realized. Ere long, Adele's little foot was heard tripping across the hall. She entered, transformed as her guardian had predicted. A dress of rose-colored satin, very short, and as full in the skirt as it could be gathered, replaced the brown frock she had previously worn. A wreath of rosebuds circled her forehead. Her feet were dressed in silk stockings and small white satin sandals. Est-ce que ma robe va bien? Does my dress fit? cried she, bounding forwards. Et mes souliers? Et mes bas? Tenez, je crois que je vais danser. She's saying, and my shoes and my stockings? Here, I think I'm going to dance. And spreading out her dress, she sashayed across the room, till, having reached Mr. Rochester, she wheeled lightly round before him on tiptoe then dropped on one knee at his feet, exclaiming, Monsieur, je vous remercie mille fois de votre bonté. So, sir, I thank you a thousand times for your kindness. Then, rising, she added, C'est comme cela que maman faisait, n'est-ce pas, monsieur? She says, that's how my mother did it, isn't it, sir? Precisely, was the answer. And comme cela, so like that, 
she charmed my English gold out of my British breeches pocket. I have been green too, Miss Eyre. I, grass green. Not a more vernal tint freshens you now than once freshened me. So he was innocent once, the way Jane is innocent now. My spring is gone, however, but it has left me that French floweret on my hands, which, in some moods, I would fain be rid of, not valuing now the root whence it sprang. So he once loved Adele's mother, but he doesn't any more. Having found that it was of a sort which nothing but gold dust could manure, I have but half a liking to the blossom, especially when it looks so artificial as just now. So he only half likes Adele, he's saying. I keep it and rear it rather on the Roman Catholic principle of expiating numerous sins, great or small, by one good work. He's saying he took her in because he hoped that he could wash away all of his other sins by doing this one good deed. I'll explain all this someday. Good night. Thank you so much for listening. I'd love to know what you thought of the chapter. Is there anything you'd like me to clarify? Did something particularly interest you? Please go to my website, faithkmore.com, click on contact, and send me your questions and thoughts. Or you can click on the link in the show notes to contact me. I'll feature one or two of your entries at the start of the next episode. Before I go, I'd like to ask a quick favor. This is an independent podcast. It's produced, recorded, and marketed by me. So I need your help. Please share this podcast with your friends. Post about it on social media. If you're studying literature at school, tell your teacher and your classmates about it. Talk about it in the break room at work. And if you could, please subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. I would really, really appreciate it. All right, everyone. Story time is over. To be continued.